Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. And the moment you've been waiting for for months, David Lynch. Thank you. Okay, I have some questions prepared, but I wanted to. I thought, we, since you have just seen it and experienced it, if we have any sort of raw reaction or questions, if anybody just wants to jump in and say something or ask something. Uh, first of all, you're a very creative man, a big fan, and I just want to say, all right, what just happened? <laughs> uh, you just saw Lost Highway. <laughs> You've said that you've started with the phrase Lost Highway, that your spark for making this movie was just those two words. Could you talk about that? Well, um, there was uh, an event before I heard those two words, but I didn't know how that event uh, related to Lost Highway. But um, I read uh, Barry Gifford's book, uh, Night People, and in it, uh, two characters were talking about going down the Lost Highway. And... Um, just a feeling came over me uh, based on those two words. And I said, Barry, I love these two words, Lost Highway. And uh, he said, well, let's write something. So uh, about a year or a year and a half later, uh, we got together. Now, you have worked together, of course. Wild at Heart was a screenplay that you wrote based on his novel. But this is the first time that you've actually written the screenplay together and written it from scratch. Could you talk about what, what was that like, that actual working process with Barry? I know we were doing that, um, uh, but looking back, it's a magical process uh, because you you can't uh, tell where ideas come from, and it seems like it's just both of us focusing on something, and it was uh, a couple of ideas that were fragments, and uh, those fragments uh, focus you and it seems that they uh, release a little lock on a door and the door opens and more fragments start coming in. They're drawn by the first fragments. It's, it's strange because uh, uh, if any of you ever written anything, one day it's not there and then uh, a month later or two months later it's there. And uh, it's the two people tuning into the same place, I think. Were you pretty much seeing the same movie all the way along? I mean, there's, of course, an aspect of this movie where it seems to be two very different things combining. No. Uh, what happens is uh, when you get fragments, uh, the whole is not revealed. It's just the fragments. And then the fragments seem to want to arrange themselves. And uh, a little bit further down the line, you begin to see what is forming. And it's as much a surprise to you as to you know anybody else. Hmm. How much of it is um, trying to convey a mood versus telling a story? Well, for me, uh, ideas, even the, a fragment, uh, c conveys everything. In like a, uh, a spark, you see uh, images, you hear sounds, you uh, feel a mood, and um, it comes complete, even if it's a, if it's a fragment. Uh, the original idea comes with a lot of power, and you have to keep checking back and all the way through the process to see if you're, you know, being true to it. 
there are sections of your movies where what you're mainly doing is creating an atmosphere, creating a mood between people. The whole first section, um, the kind of feeling between this couple. Um, and, it, and the film takes a lot of time to, to let that happen. Um, also, in the beginning of Twin Peaks, the pilot, which we just showed, um, so much of that beginning is just the mood of the mother kind of dealing with the fact that her daughter's been killed. So how do you allow yourself to take the time or to let that evolve during a film? Uh things either feel correct or they feel incorrect yeah. and every element that you're dealing with uh, you work with until it feels correct and that's going back and checking with the uh, original idea and how what is in front of you is, is striking you yeah. and uh, it's, it's a, a feeling yeah. now in reading the screenplay um, there are some scenes what you've done with them when you're directing them, um, you've, you've added so much more and emphasized so much more than what's on the written page. For example, when um, Baltus Argetti, when his character first sees uh, Patricia Arquette in the car and you play that, um, that magic moment, that's a, really just like a line of dialogue in the script, but it's such an overemphasized moment. You take that beyond. I mean, you go into slow motion, you, you know, crank up that song. When does this emphasis happen is that in your mind when it's being written or yeah it's in uh, the the script is like a blueprint and uh so the house you can see the house in the in the blueprint but the house is is much more all those things are there but the the script uh sometimes uh can't be a thousand pages and uh so um uh, many <laughs> things are are done in shorthand but uh, the, the original idea, again, is uh, is what you follow, and it is more than maybe what is written in the script at all, all the time. And then the process uh, goes through the script, and you feel that the script is saying, uh, you know, what you want it to, but the process continues, and it continues, and it, it a film is never over until it's over. And the, and the last things you're doing are sometimes the most critical because mm-hmm. then the thing locks and it, it becomes itself and uh, it's, it's um, the only time that the process is, is over. How much mystery is there to you? So the first, the, we had a question saying, what, what did we just see? What just happened? Do you, do you know all the answers yourself? Do you know what happened on the, on the lawn that night that we never hear about? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but so does everybody. Um, there's things uh, in life that happen that are um, supposedly, you know, uh, unexplainable. There's strange feelings that we have. Uh, many, many things are communicated to us uh, without words. And inside, we have a mechanism, uh, intu- intuition, and uh, sensing mechanisms. Uh, it kicks in and tries to make sense of the thing. And this, this thing is storing a knowledge that's very difficult to speak about. Hmm. But you can sense uh, much more sometimes than you can uh, talk about. Now, in the, in the um, time before this film was made, there was a, a four-year period of um, projects um, that you were developing and then decided not to make. There was a film called Mulholland Drive, a, a comedy called Dream of the Bovine, apparently. The Dream of the Bovine. Uh, I wrote um, this with my friend Bob Engels, and I... You know, Bob and I may be uh, the only, uh, or maybe a few other people uh, that uh, appreciated this very, very bad, um, uh, stupid uh, comedy. (laughs) Fate plays a huge part in our lives, and uh, we may think uh, something is correct, uh, but uh, many forces are telling us this is not the time for this particular thing. 
and you're sort of, you know, moved. Uh, it seems like forces outside of you are moving you. And uh, but when everything gets lined up, uh, the lights start turning green, and and you're you're suddenly um, the, the barriers have been removed, and you're rolling. Hmm. I'm an avid laser disc collector. Do you intend to get involved in any of these future projects, uh, uh, releasing your movies the way that they should be released? Uh? Yeah, it's a it's a tricky business. Um, I would like to see everything done, you know, uh, letterboxed and with great sound. I, I'm not uh, too interested in, in, in doing the commentary, you know, like the, a lot of people do. Um, but um, I, I, in, in some strange way, I, I kind of like pan and scan um, uh, because it, you see things. Uh, it is a, a compromise and a couple things, you know, you really say, you know, why, are, why am I doing it? But... Um, it's just an interesting uh, thing that happens. Another compositions and things. Um, it's not so bad, um, but um, I wish, really, that um, uh, people could see the thing in a theater. Um, and laser discs and videos didn't exist because on the big screen, when the sound, uh, everything is, you're, you become inside the the film, and that's the um, the beauty of. Uh, cinema and it never happens on video and it doesn't happen on laserdisc either you uh, pay more attention to sound than i think almost any other director working today in the last few films you have been credited as being the sound designer which is un which is rather unusual for director and it, this has been an emphasis from the very very beginning even before eraserhead um the short from the grandmother that we showed here which was designed by sound designed by alan split um, and he also did the sound with you on eraserhead all through the years, you've, um, sound has been a primary interest. Could you talk about Well, um, yeah, cinema is sound and picture both working together, and all the elements are so extremely important. Um, so I, I don't know how, quite how it had happened, uh, but um, it's, it's something that uh, from the beginning I, I loved, and to see sound um, approach... Uh, the abstraction of, of music and uh, almost, you know, blend, um, obey some of the same rules as music and, um, and how important it is to um, complete uh, the picture. And again, it's, it's just a feeling. Alan and I, um, Alan Splett and I would always, uh, you know, work side by side. And in those days, before digital and everything, we start with organic effects that we, you know, tape and uh, and then fiddle with it on now, but like prehistoric kind of, you know, equipment. But um, uh, it's it's a whole world, and it's it's a beautiful world. Sound um, editing is usually the last step in the process in post production. But where does it does it start earlier for you? I try to. I work with Angelo Badalamenti, um, writing uh, things. Uh, Angelo writes a bunch of things for me up front um, that are mood things, and I listen to it uh, in playback or found music that Angelo uh, didn't write. And um, sound effects. Um, sometimes the location sound man will get just raw uh, things that we hear along the way, but it starts really the first day of post-production. Uh, we have a, uh, a big meeting with everybody and go through shot by shot and talk and they record that and then go back and, and start, you know, uh, getting raw materials together and then I listen to those and we get down uh, closer and closer. But a lot of things as I said before, because of the speed of, of uh, 
digital. Uh, and a great, great engineer, John Ross, and uh, he has fantastic people working for him at uh, this place called Digital Sound and Picture in L.A. He uh, really helps speed up uh, the process because of his knowledge. But do you play music for actors before scenes to get them into moods? The whole first section, again, with the couple uh, before the murder in this film, there's a very particular mood. Um, we're always playing. Uh, sometimes we play it in, in big speakers. Um, it always comes through my headphones and maybe the DP's headphones. Um, and, um, you know, music is a great way to uh, instill uh, some kind of strange understanding of um, the atmosphere in a scene. So, uh, yeah, we play it for uh, the actors when, it, when, it's, when it's right. And how much are you inspired by place? In, t in talking about tailgating, it made me think that this, this film seems very much like a Los Angeles film. And you've said in the past that Philadelphia was the, was the biggest influence in your life, just the experience of living there before you made Eraserhead. I mean, how much do you think um, place affects you? Can we see Lost Highway as sort of your reaction to Los Angeles? No. Um, <laughs> Los Angeles is the city, um, but every, every time you show a city, you never can show uh, the whole or all the different feelings and different moods. Los Angeles has, um, and every city has, you go a few blocks, you turn into another place, and it's, it's a different mood. So you try to find the places that bring out the, the mood and the look, and again, it goes back to checking with the original ideas. The picture is, is there, and if you're not able to build it, uh, you try to find it. And then uh, sometimes in finding those uh, things, uh, you get new ideas. So it's... It is, again, a, a total, just a, on a feel, uh, and uh, you look until uh, it is the, is the place. Yeah, you were speaking earlier about the process and development of the films, uh, <coughs> from Blueprint. Do you take a similar approach to paintings? Painting is, um, I, I think everybody would have a, a different answer uh, about painting, but uh, for me, it's... It's just one idea that is strong enough to get me started. The final thing is not remotely like the original idea, and it's just an action and reaction with paint, and you get a dialogue going with this paint, and it, you have the feeling that you almost want to stay out of the way of it. It sort of wants to be a certain way, and it's talking to you, and you just keep on uh, going, and it can, it can almost be uh, where time disappears. You're inside of uh, some uh, beautiful place. It's, it's, it's just you and the, and, the, and the paint. Sometimes when you finish a painting, uh, looking at it, you start hearing sounds. And, um, or you could imagine sounds that would go you know, beautifully with it. That's how I got into film. Uh, seeing uh, some part of the painting wanting to move and hearing maybe a little wind so it just sound and, and motion started uh, becoming a thing that led to animation, pretty primitive, crude animation. But they were supposed to be moving paintings. When you were shooting, did you look around and realize there's still places in Los Angeles you've never seen and how um, incredible you thought about seeing them and how they were from the Yes and no. Um, if you just went looking for the places that hadn't been used, uh, they may be fine uh, in and of themselves, but they may not be right for your, your film. 
And so it's again, it's a, it's a process of um, talking to uh, the location scouts, and uh, in talking, uh, some pictures are forming in their mind, and they go out and take photos, and they bring the photos back, and then you look at them, and they are not at all, you know, what you wanted. But there might be some aspect of one, and that narrows it down some more. So they go back out again. Pretty soon you have some places that are pretty good possibilities, and then you have, have to go look. And in, in looking and seeing what you could do, um, what they will allow you to do to change them, uh, finally you, you get the places. And it doesn't really matter if they've been used a, a thousand times. If you see that that you can alter them or, or the mood is correct, uh, you have to, have to go with it. It's better if, they haven't, if they're not a location that kicks in a, a scene from a, a great film you know, of the past and confuses your picture, but normally you change them. And, and just the angles, people sometimes can't uh, tell. Uh, the lighting and, and um, the scene, uh, everything uh, is, is so different. When you go out with this monster equipment and you start uh, uh, on your project uh, working on the film, does it ever come back as like you're going to expect it? Well, and the first DP on uh, Eraserhead said, um, dailies should never have any surprises. Uh, it should come back uh, the way you expect it. And uh, for me, um, you know, you can tell uh, by looking in front of you what you're what you're going to be getting way before video or playback it's it's right there and you've seen through the camera and you can feel it and see it but there is uh sometimes beautiful surprises in what the film and the developing and and all of this can do that's why it's very important to um do some tests up front and and see dailies every day because um sometimes strange accidents happen just at the end of a take, the uh, camera's panned away and some hits something and you see something and you say, Peter, what, what, was, what did I just see? How, do we, how did that happen? And you analyze it and you see that you could use it for something else. Always there's uh, accidents, uh, strange little things happening and that you have to pay, pay attention to. Is that how it worked with the Bob, uh, with the character Bob in the Twin Peaks? He was a sound man? No, he was a, a set dresser. That was a total accident, um, and it, it was an accident that, um, I mean, looking back, it had to happen. Uh, these things are, are so uh, beautiful when they happen, and if you can follow them, it led to um, a, a huge part of Twin Peaks, and it was just an accident. Um, the other night when you were interviewed by Charlie Rose, he showed a clip and said, what was in your head when you shot that scene? You said that scene was in my head. I mean, is that pretty much how you feel that the film is what you it's, had imagined? It's exactly? always different than than what you imagine because uh, in the beginning, these ideas uh, you see and you feel, but in the process of translating the ideas, many, many, many things come in. New ideas. Um, these particular actors or actresses, uh, that particular location, um, these sounds, this music. Uh, this kind of light, and so subtly things are changing. You're feeling it as you go, and um, then there's a point where, um, and, and Mary can tell you, uh, where you finally see a cut uh, of the entire film together, and that usually is 
one of the most horrible days in, in the process because you see it, it doesn't work. Do you see it with other people or just... You, you see it alone at first, mm-hmm. but you know it, it doesn't look, work. So then you have another whole thing. It's an action and reaction with what you actually have and to find the ways through experimenting um, how the whole can work together. And um, uh, if, you're, if you're lucky, it, 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 snaps, uh, it snaps together. And, and what do you learn on, like, on the first viewings with an audience? And one thing I'm thinking when I ask this, usually in your films it seems like there's at least one scene that is, you know is going to shock an audience. That is, I don't know if it's put there to shock them. No, 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 um, it's not. Like, you never want to yeah. um, um, uh, manipulate. <laughs> um, the thing has to grow from a place, um, maybe it's outside of a person. It has to come, and, and you have to be true to the ideas. And it's not ever done... Um, at least for me, to make a theme come out or a message come out or a thing come out or a shock thing. It's the way the ideas are, are talking to you and um, how they form themselves together the way they want to be. There's a point where you think the film is, is working, but you've lost uh, a lot of objectivity in the process seeing it so many times. So if you sit with uh, other people, um, they don't have to say anything. You can uh, feel... Uh, what is wrong just with their their presence and that's a that's a bad feeling but um, it's it's very important to do it you can learn many things from that first screening or second screening with people I want to ask about what role your your meditation plays in your creative process because you've talked about how you meditate every day and it seems just the, this idea of sort of just being open um, and, or being in a different state must influence your creativity well, I, you know, believe in uh, this uh, meditation. Um, they say that the, the nervous system is the instrument of consciousness. And if you can expand your consciousness, um, uh, you might be able to catch bigger ideas. You might be able to see more of the, the truth of situations and, uh, you know, understanding uh, grows. Do you uh, use, like, other films as sort of like a creative uh, springboard? No. I think, you know, a, a film is digested uh, ideas and processes. Uh, if you take from things that have uh, gone through that process, you're further away uh, from the source. And um, the, the s- ideas are the most important things. And they seem to be um, lying there in an ocean and available and so if you could go in and get uh, your own idea, now it may have similarities to many things that have gone before, but you feel it's, it's, it's yours and you fall in love with it. And that's a very good feeling. Okay, over here. Hi, uh, Jeff Nairns was a um, staple of your own that you can say a couple words about. I could talk for several hours about Jack Nance. Jack, uh, I met in 1971, and he was the first person cast, uh, the only one I saw for Eraserhead uh, for Henry, <laughs> and, and the first of the cast to be cast. Um, again, fate is uh, playing such a, a huge part, uh, because Jack, after uh, working in film for maybe, I don't know, 30 years now, um, I've never run across anybody uh, more perfect than Jack for Henry and for the roles that he's, he's played. And there he was uh, just given to me. We became great friends, and he's a very special person. He's, as I said before, he's 
totally unmotivated. And so he didn't work that much. Um, but um, when he did work, uh, he always brought something very special. And uh, he would sit at home in these little slippers and a robe and uh, think. And he had uh, the best stories and was a great storyteller and had um, real insight into um, the human condition. He was a great guy. And how was the hairdo developed for Eraserhead? Um, Jack, there's again, uh, fate, had a particular type of hair. And I wanted it to be uh, short on the sides, long on top. And when they... We had a barber come over uh, to the American Film Institute in this place where we were working down in the stables, and the barber cut it short on the side and left just what was there, but it wasn't standing up. And then as soon as um, uh, Catherine Coulson, who later became the log lady but was his wife at the time, uh, uh, combed it, this uh, stuff just uh, stood up. <laughs> and at first we were not sure that it was uh, too much, but... We went with it and, and very quickly became used to it. And, uh, and Jack had that haircut for maybe five or six years. <laughs> <laughs> you spent five years on a razor head. I just wonder if you could talk about how unique that experience remains to you. Well, when you uh, fall in love with ideas and um, in the process of making a, a film, uh, you are able to... Uh, live inside that world it's it's very special and and the more you can sink into that world and and feel it uh, the better it is for uh, the film and your own enjoyment you want to stay in the set longer than the hours that you shoot just to just to feel it and um, and to be there and uh, in Eraserhead maybe we had even a little too much time uh, <laughs> feeling it um, because it we kept running out of money and uh it was a beautiful world, and when we were in it, um, we could imagine the outside of it, uh, even though it wasn't in reality there. And uh, that's a, a great feeling, to feel you're in uh, a different world and, and understand it and f feel it. One question is whether or not you use storyboards. I'm wondering what your feelings are about sexuality and cinema in general, specifically like um, uh, use of, of male genitalia. You know, there's a lot of women, but I wonder if you have any feelings or if that concerns you. Or... Uh. <laughs> well, let's just talk about storyboards first. <laughs> <laughs> storyboards um, are... They, they tend to lock people in, and... Um, so it's fine to do some storyboards maybe for yourself, but if other people see them, then they think that's exactly what you're going to do. And uh, some sequences that involve, uh, like, cars and, and, you know, a car chase with Mr. Eddie, uh, those we uh, talked about and maybe did drawings um, so that many, many people can understand what we're trying to do and get prepared. But in a normal scenes, um, I never do any storyboards. And... Um, Sex is all dependent on the characters. And uh, the characters tell you how that, that sex will be. So since there's so many possibilities of characters, the sex could be, you know, many, many different ways. And I think the rule is to uh, figure out why you're doing this sex scene and how, how then is it supposed to be to bring out these things. And, um, and, and it tells you. 
and, and away you go. So uh, sex could go from, the, you know, the low, uh, uh, dark uh, hell, and it could go all the way to uh, the spiritual. But it always comes down to uh, two people, and they are a certain way, and so the sex, you know, follows. Do you play a large part in the casting of your movies, and how did you get Robert Blake? Uh, yes, what you try to do, it's a common sense thing, is get the right person for the right part. And again, that is a, a sort of a feeling, and you run pe different people's uh, image through the film and see if they, uh, if, you're, if they are saying those things and how it feels. And some make it all the way through, and then you meet with those people. And, um, and, and it's just, again, a, a process to get the right person for that part. And, and then it, the process continues by getting them to tune in to the uh, place where you're, you're tuned into. And um, Robert Blake is a guy I, I've, you know, followed. Um, I don't know if you saw, uh, he was on Tom Snyder's show and, and talking about his life. He's got a million stories. started acting when he was three. And, but I, I think what really did it for me, I saw him on the Johnny Carson show one time and I'm, I'm sure he has fears, but he's a one of a kind and not afraid to, to be himself. And he speaks his mind, and I, I got a respect for him uh, after seeing him on the show. And I, a seed was planted that I wanted to work with him. But again, finding the right person for the right part, finally it came along. And so we got together and, and talked about it, and he said he wanted to do it, but he said he didn't understand the script. LAUGHTER um, Richard Pryor was a very evocative piece of casting. How did that come about, and what was he like? Uh, talk show uh, did it with Richard Pryor, too. I'd seen him, uh, his stand-up routines. I've seen him on JoJo Dancer. But um, I saw him on a talk show where he was talking about um, what uh, a life uh, he had uh, been through and what he'd come out of, and... I, I fell in love with the guy. Uh, he had so much wisdom and uh, understanding. Uh, got uh, such a good feeling came f uh, through from him. Uh, I said, I wish I uh, could, you know, work with Richard. And when his part came up, he has MS and uh, he's in a wheelchair. But he said he wanted to do it, and he came in. We had two scenes to shoot, and um, we finished those two scenes. And then we had some more time and. Uh, put him in the, uh, the garage, a portion of that is in the film, in, on the phone, and gave him a premise, and he ad-libbed for over nine minutes, and it's incredible uh, what, he, what he came up with. Do you still find it difficult to uh, get the financing for your films uh, because they are so on mainstream? I've really been lucky, and um, again, it's just a fate thing. I know there are people out in the world who have um, uh, great, uh, great ideas and tremendous talent, and they can't seem to find um, uh, the elements don't come together. They don't get a way to go. I, I've just been lucky. There's no rhyme or reason to it. I had delivered the Wall Street Journal during uh, Eraserhead for a couple of years. It took me an hour to do the route. The first night it took me about six hours. Um, but. Um, and it was a very dangerous uh, one hour because you're flat out, you're throwing papers from the car. And um, the Wall Street Journal was shipped. I'd pick them up at about 11.30 at night. And um, 
they had no uh, name or address on them. I knew the, the route and would just give a paper to each place it was supposed to go. Then one night, uh, a couple of years later, they started putting people's names and addresses. And I had to sync up uh, these papers um, with that uh, particular person. And um, I, I refused to do that. And um, um, so um, the news seemed to be exactly the same for Tom as it did for Mary. And, um, but they had, to, they had to let me go. I felt a little incomplete, and I wonder if that was an intention. No. No. I would like you to feel uh, complete, but um, um, uh, many mysteries, uh, as you know, are solved um, with with no room to dream, and the mystery being solved is much less than you wanted it to be somewhere during the beginning of the unfolding of the mystery. And it's a, it's a tremendous letdown. I, I really feel that um, many things should be understood, but there still has to be some uh, room to think and, and dream. Is there something in you that eventually, whenever you're trying to either paint or work with music or you know, work with film, that tries to resist the conclusion altogether? No. The whole thing has to make sense to you, and uh, it has to feel correct. And um, but again, it's based on these ideas that have been forming and arranging, and um, finally showing you um, what it is. It's it's just focusing on those through the process, and 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 if it if it makes a sense, no matter how abstract a sense, um, again, it goes back to in, in intuition rather than just pure intellect uh, and. Um, uh, something that can be so easily translated into words by you know everyone those are are beautiful things to me abstractions and uh, life is filled with them and cinema can can do abstractions you you've said that Frank Danielle at the AFI who was one of your first film teachers said that in order to make a feature film you should take 70 index cards and have a scene for each index card and then you have a feature film Right. It seems if you take that approach, that gives you sort of a freedom to not have to figure everything, everything out. Do you? Well, I think it's everyone's experience that um, uh, no matter what, uh, things come to us in in uh, fragments. And uh, well, I, I gotta say, Frank Danielle uh, passed away uh, about a year ago, I guess. And um, one of the greatest film teachers, I think, that existed and beautiful person. Uh, so generous was Frank, uh, and he believed in constructive criticism. And that's where you can actually criticize something, but at the same time, now the world is, is really uh, into uh, destructive criticism, and um, it's very bad for the person being destroyed, but it's, it's, it's bad for uh, everyone. And um, so... I, I wish that you all could have heard uh, Frank Danielle uh, speak and, and, and um, heard a bit of this uh, wisdom that he had. What was some of the reaction like during the, that whole process of making Eraserhead where it was, was taking so long? Um, well, Frank left in the, in the middle of this. Pro many, many different regimes uh, came <laughs> in and, um, at the American Film Institute, but um, Frank was always a, a big supporter of uh, my work and, and everyone's work. And... Uh, um, 
stayed in touch uh, through the years and, and gave his, his support. You seem to use fire as an image a lot. I was wondering what the significance was to you. Fire, well, um, as we all know, um, it's pretty magical. Um, and it's, it's uh, so uh, strange uh, to see uh, things in life that seem to be dense and, and concrete and maintain their form, and then suddenly see fire, which is ethereal and, and moving and, and uh, has a, a magic. Um, but when you are working, sometimes the fire you know means this and sometimes it means this and and again it's just a a feeling Um, so many things uh, can be said with a picture and a sound that um, maybe a poet could translate it uh, into words but I I can't I can't do it I was just wondering what films in particular by other directors uh, you admire and for what reasons and for what reasons I admire, you know, I won't be able to name all the people I really admire, but um, I like, uh, I, I love uh, Fellini and Bergman, Hitchcock, Jacques Tati, Billy Wilder. Uh, Stanley Kubrick. Now, I'm, now I have to embarrass you and make you tell the Stanley Kubrick story about... Um well, you, sometimes <laughs> in life you get a, th- a thrill, uh, and you get a thrill when you least expect it. Uh, I was in a place called Lee International Film Studios in Wembley, England, um, in pre-production for uh, The Elephant Man, and uh, uh, George Lucas and a, a bunch of people of his team were over setting up, uh, I think, the second Star Wars at Elstree Studios, and one day they were walking around and they met Stanley Kubrick and um, they got to talking and Stanley said um, how would you fellas like to come up to my house tonight and see my favorite film and they said great and he, they went up and uh, he showed them Eraserhead Can <laughs> <laughs> you expound a little bit more on your theory on coincidences and how you feel like they can guide your life? coincidences and how they can guide uh, one's life um, well it happens I'm sure to everyone um, but in film um, there's many many things going on and um, sometimes uh, one thing will collide with another and it wasn't meant to happen that way um, but the things were all set up in motion and you see the coll- collision and sometimes nothing happens but sometimes um, that uh, supposed accident uh, leads to you know many uh, beautiful things. So all I can say is, they will occur, and uh, the more elements in motion, the more chances of the occurrence, and that uh, people should stay alert uh, for those things. Uh, for uh, the tiniest indication, can somehow uh, spiral out and be uh, a great, seemingly new new thing. Could you say something about uh, the projects you have? future that you're looking forward to doing and is Ronnie Rocket one of them? I, I don't know if Ronnie Rocket uh, Ronnie Rocket could be every time I've gotten close to making this film Ronnie Rocket um, for some reason it hasn't gone through or I've, I've backed away but other than Ronnie Rocket I don't have um, I haven't caught uh, the next idea uh, either through a book or from the ocean of ideas
Which aspect of uh, filmmaking as a creator do you enjoy the most? Uh, from the very beginning um, through to the end, I, I love. And um, th all the process is so, is so beautiful and so important to sink inside of. It's when the film is finished, uh, um, as much as I like talking to you all, um, <laughs> this is the hardest part, to introduce it um, out into the world. It, you have no control over, over you know, how it's going to go. What has surprised you about reactions to previous films? How do you feel about Lost Highway? I mean, it hasn't been out that long, but what can you say? So it's far? not out till, till yeah, next week, but, but uh, in France it came out. Right. And, um, you know, I think um, the, the secret is to work until you feel good and, and then to uh, let, it, let it go because, like I just said, you, you never can control how people will react and uh, you learn that sometimes it goes well and sometimes it goes very poorly. And uh, uh, you don't want to uh, be ruined by either a positive or a negative. And success can uh, blow you into a strange area where it's detrimental for thinking. And uh, so it's better to concentrate on the, on the next thing. How was Blue Velvet for you? How did that feel? After, after Eraserhead, you made this kind of incredible jump to doing the, a big-budget film, Elephant Man, and then even bigger-budget film, Dune, um, and then this very personal project, Blue Velvet. Could you talk about, since we're going to see Blue Velvet later on, if you could just talk about that a bit. Uh, I could say uh, that uh, Dino De Laurentiis um, mm -hmm. cut my salary <laughs> and cut the budget and um, then gave me final final cut, and uh, so he's very he was into cutting, uh, and um, <laughs> um, and Dune had been such a failure. We shot Blue Velvet was in Wilmington, North Carolina, and Dino was uh, on top of the world. They had many things going on there in these studios, and um, we were we were uh, the the poor kids on the block, and uh, it was a beautiful uh, sense of freedom, and there was nowhere to go but up, and. Um, <laughs> And that's a, that's a great atmosphere to, to work inside of. And uh, uh, so I, I look back on it as a, a very good time. While on the subject of Blue Velvet, what, what exactly is it Frank Booth is Well, Dennis, uh, you know, the other night I was on Charlie Rose, and Dennis had been on, and they showed a clip of, uh, which is, this is, a, uh, this is true what Dennis said. I had written in the uh, script uh, of Helium, and the reason uh, I wrote in Helium is because it alters the voice and makes it more uh, baby-like, and Frank uh, needed uh, that uh, particular feeling. But Dennis had a, and I think having, you know, heard it mentally is, is different than hearing it uh, in reality. And uh, Dennis uh, had a problem with the Helium, and he wanted to get there um, without uh, that putting him there, and talked about many uh, nitrix, uh, nit nitrous oxide and a combo of, of drugs. And, <laughs> and Dennis is a guy you listen to very carefully when you talk about uh, uh, drugs. So, um, you know, he had a, a mental uh, story about what was in those canisters. And there were four or five uh, canisters strapped together. Can you talk about your relationships with your different DPs? 
Yeah, it's um, I, I again. I've been lucky with uh, great DPs. I think all of them. Uh, you develop a friendship. Number one, a, a dialogue uh, with, and you're talking about how this has to has to be. And um, I've never had problems. Again, everybody eventually comes to being tuned into a certain place. And you move all of us in, this, in the crew as, as one, eventually. Freddie Francis, who shot The Elephant Man, the only problem I ever had with him is um, uh, he, would, he always said, I wanted it so dark you can't see it. And um, so I had to work with Freddie a little bit um, for the darker scenes. But a great DP, Freddie Francis. All of them, Fred Elms and Ron Garcia, uh, Peter Deming on uh, Lost Highway, and... Um, I'm missing probably somebody, but uh, Herb Cardwell, the first one on uh, Eraserhead. Is it scheduling why you switch? Um, it's it's a lot of times people aren't available, but sometimes you meet somebody like it happened with t- this time with Peter Deming. I'd worked with him before, and you get I got with with Peter uh, a real joy in experimenting and pushing here or there. So I I really like that a lot, and uh, just a. Uh, again, a, a chemistry uh, thing. Okay, we're gonna. Unfortunately, we're gonna have to stop in here. But but please join us in the next gallery over for a book signing. And um, again, thanks to David Lynch. Thank for you being very with us. much. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.